0: Hello and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here with Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, I want to talk today about what you identified in a recent piece for American Greatness as the tenets of progressive nihilism. Uh, These are areas of progressive thought where there's this sort of quasi-religious belief that in in your telling is – immune to the facts and the reality on the ground and i want to start as you do on the topic of environmentalism where you see the recent experience of your home state of california which just over the past few months emerged from a years-long drought as emblematic of the problem here nature solved california's problem and the politicians (laughs) squandered it explain what happened
1: well we had a four-year drought and we've had accurate record keeping for 125 years since 1895 or so, Uh, 1890. We never had more than a four-year drought. So this generation gets a four-year drought, and they immediately say that it's unprecedented and that reservoirs and aqueducts won't do it. If we built them, they would be dry. It's climate change. I'm almost quoting directly from Jerry Brown, governor and Barack Obama. Then suddenly, 12 months later, They tell us climate chaos has created the wettest year on record, which is is 2017. Even though 2016 marked the official end of the drought, it was a normal year of precipitation. And then what did they do in this rare wet year? They let out 52 million acre feet, which is more than the combined theoretical storage of all the reservoirs. They did it partly because they didn't have the room partly because they saw it as a golden opportunity to pay off the environmentalists who want whitewater rivers from the Sierra to the ocean, I guess for the idea of it, and they want more oxygenated water for some reason than Delta, even though the Delta smelt. The three-inch baitfish is dying for other reasons, mostly because of striped bass. But in any case, we didn't build one reservoir, one aqueduct, one canal, and we took a godsend, a record year of precipitation, and we could have filled up at least 10 million acre-feet for probably about $8 billion would have built the Sites Reservoir, the Los Banos Grandes, and the Temperance Flat Reservoirs. 10 million acre-feet, they would be full right now. That would give a, get us through a whole drought year, just those reservoirs. And the result is it all went out to the ocean. It's too late. It's gone. We just have a normal precipitation year with some the reservoirs will be full, but they won't be full enough to keep us over if next year is a drought. So we need to build these things, but yet these environmentalists believe that they're... I, I can't figure it out. I mean, they, that's what I tried to say. I, I'm puzzled that they believe that they don't serve any need, and yet all of San Francisco's water with, is either California Water Project or Hetch Water Project water. And they provide cheap recreation for people in the mountains. They provide clean hydroelectric power. They give irrigation to farmers. They allow people to live in, live in floodplains or gravity-operated. It's a wonderful system to allow one-third of the people, uh, one-third of the precipitation to have two-thirds of the people live there and, and where two-thirds of the people don't want to live up where the water is, uh, they can transfer that water to
0: where they do want to live. One of the things that's always striking to me, the, I, like you, am a Californian native, so that's the context that I know best, but is how much of the environmental movement is populated by people who live pretty urban existences and whose interaction with nature is, to the extent that they have it, recreational. Uh, you're a farmer. You're someone who works with the land. What dispositional differences do you know between people like you who've had that kind of experience and those who don't when it comes to how they think about the environment?
1: Yeah, I think it's the difference between a tragic and therapeutic view of nature that here I'm looking out from my office at Silicon Valley and people feel they can control the environment and that's the natural order of things. For all the romance about the wild, they don't really believe it, but Everything should be predictable and controlled, and the bad people do bad things to people, and good people do good things. And that's not what tragedy or life's about. I mean, I did everything by the book once and thinned and pruned just beautifully a plum orchard while my neighbor, who was lazy and no good, shorted his thinning didn't do, do pruning, didn't fertilize, and then a big hailstorm came and it destroyed everything that I had done. All the plums were knocked off three days before harvest, and it, within a quarter mile, missed his. And he told me he was a genius and I was an idiot. Hmm. How do you explain that, except there's certain things that happen. There's irony, there's there's cynicism, There's uh, it's tragedy, and that's what farmers put up with every day, that there's certain things that they allow to be beyond their control. But in these urban environments, these people see everything as melodrama, and they can control everything. And there's bad people doing this, and there's good people doing this. And, uh, right near my house, uh, I know every farmer who lived in this 100-acre block, this little 20-acre farmers, wonderful people. They're all gone. They're dead. Their kids moved away. And now... We've destroyed the whole thing and put in affordable housing. And who's living there? Poor people from Mexico. They can buy an 1,800-square-foot home for $140,000. I think it's actually pretty good. It's a tragedy that, that land is gone and that these people are beneath our feet now. But I'm a realist, and I'd like people who want to work hard to be able to have a affordable and decent living. When I suggested the same thing at a, a San Mateo Chamber of Commerce, that there's a lot of land on two hundred and eighty. There's a lot of water in the Hetch Hetchy Crystal Springs Supplied uh, Reservoir. There's availability of mass transit. And there's a lot of poor people in Redwood City living in garages and five to families to a home as they wait on us. They mow our lawns. And why not build affordable housing down the 280 corridor? You should have heard the outrage. Mm -hmm. I would not allow that, you know. And so... I just don't believe they're serious people. They need to be taken seriously. It's kind of a religion. It's a romance. But they have no idea about nature. And so the the fact that they don't see nature or they don't have to deal with it means they buy hiking boots. They buy four-wheel drive cars. They wear big, thick parkas. And then they go one day into the wilderness. I just saw a woman in the parking lot today, and she pulled in with a Hummer. And, you know, snow tires and mud tires. And I thought, wow, are the roads that bad in Pejuato? <laughs> she was prepared to go to the North Pole, but she's never gonna go anywhere from but here to Atherton, you know. But it's this romance that wild, of, I guess captivated her to buy a contraption like that.
0: The next example of progressive nihilism that you cite in your piece is immigration. And and here you have a very specific critique, which is that The rhetoric around immigration, especially from those who sort of style themselves activists, at some basic level, contradicts their actions. Explain the hypocrisy there.
1: Well, we have 11 million people who fled central Mexico and central America to come to the United States. And they did because they felt economically, socially, politically, culturally, they would be treated with respect and they would have opportunities. So they came up here. And then immediately people saw in whether they were cheap laborers or they were potential constituents or they were part of the welfare state. But they created this mythology that uh, they just happened to be parachuted in here. And so that, uh, the result after 20 years is bilingual education, La Raza. So when I see what's happened, if I go to a local cantina near my house and I see all Amer- uh, all Mexican flags and Mexican decals and all Spanish. I, I asked myself, why did you come up here? I mean, you could have all that in Oaxaca. And the answer of course, is if you talk and I do talk to a lot of people from Mexico, it's if I could translate it, I kind of like the emergency room here. I like being treated with respect. I like the fact that it's not racist. The fact that I'm treated as an indigenous person from Oaxaca with respect I like the idea and get a car. I like the idea the water doesn't make me sick. I like the idea there's not outhouses. But I want Mexico and that. And you try to tell them they're antithetical for a variety of historical reasons. And that hasn't you can't you can't make that. I had a student once during the 187 controversy that was burning the American flag. Really bright guy from Mexico, and I said, "You're burning the flag that." Um, under no circumstances do you want to leave, and you're waving the flag under no circumstances you want to return to. Can you explain that to me? And he said, I can't. And he pretty much was honest about it. So, this whole Raza identity politics stuff, or as another Mexican American guy told me, he said, You know, Victor, when, when our hometown, Salma, is all like Oaxaca and Fresno's like Oaxaca, I'm going to go to Portland. And then when Portland's like Oaxaca, I'm going to go to Seattle. And when Seattle's like Oaxaca, and he didn't mean it in racial or uh, linguistic or ethnic terms, he just meant in principles of social organization, constitutional government. And he didn't want to live like he had in Oaxaca, and he didn't come up here to recreate Oaxaca. And that means that he wanted to assimilate, integrate, intermarry. And yet we deride that as the old-fashioned calcified melting pot, and we glorify something like The Rwanda, Balkans, Iraq salad bowl. They should go take a look at Austria-Hungary and see how that worked out in the 19th century.
0: The story about your student is a logical transition for us to the last example that you cite in this piece as another example of progressive nihilism, that being American higher education. and Specifically, the anxiety that many of the student protesters we see on college campuses have over privilege this is usually in the context of white privilege but regardless this strikes you this notion of these college students complaining about privilege as something that's absurd on its face explain that
1: yeah you know i speak at a lot of colleges and most of the time i'm treated pretty well sometimes not but most of the time i am but one thing that strikes me is that contemporary college campus has no resemblance the 60s idea that oh I remember when I was at UC Santa Cruz the glory days were the trailers we all took classes in trailers and there was no emphasis on buildings it was ideas and everybody tried to wear ratty clothes but when I go to these campuses uh I mean they're kind of like club med there's climbing walls there's latte bars there's counselors and then when you give a talk the students say they're terrified, or they're worried, or they're. And you look at them; they're the wealthiest kids in the world. Their parents pay sixty-five, seventy thousand dollars a year. They're the epitome of privilege. And in the case of white privilege, they have it, and yet they're always talking about some mythical white—I don't know—person, and I don't know who they're talking about. Somebody in Bakersfield is a mechanic. Somebody in Appalachia who's out of a job mining coal. So the people of privilege and it's all different colors and races and everything are always damning the people for having privilege that don't have it and then they live in sort of a la la land where there's no consequences to anything so you get a speaker you don't like you just rush the stage you call this you say this that's hate speech it's racist nativist islamophobia whatever it is but what never happens is a real world consequence so We're still waiting for Sam Hayakawa Redux to come out and say, hey, the next student who creates a felony or engages in felonious behavior of using violence to stop somebody is going to be expelled and we're going to turn them over to the police. And then when they apply for Goldman Sachs in five years, they're going to have a felony on their record. And I think that would stop it real quick.
0: The last thing that I'll ask you, there are parallel and i guess to some degree mutually exclusive anxieties about the consequences of the left embracing more of this activist progressive mindset that you've been describing and and the anxieties are on the right it's that more and more of america is going to come to look like college campuses and that life is going to be increasingly unpleasant for those people who refuse to genuflect to the leftist orthodoxy on the left at least among the people who count votes on the left, the anxiety is that this is going to array more and more of American society against the Democratic Party, as many people argue happened with the election of Donald Trump. Even if you didn't like him, he was sort of your port in the storm from this madness. Which one of those scenarios hits your ears with more of a ring of plausibility?
1: Oh, I think that whatever one's politics are that, Traditionalism that emerged over twenty five hundred years uh, is more akin to human nature. So most people like to pe- treat people with respect. They do believe in their character and not the color of their skin. They are not. I mean, they do feel that there is such a thing as biological sex, and it's different than constructed sex, um, gender. The term we use. So the republic. All the polls show that those who poll moderately conservative. And conservative outnumber those who were moderately liberal and and really liberal. So, I think that we, Democratic Party understands that any time they until Obama, any time they never they did not nominate a southerner, whether it was Lyndon Johnson or Jimmy Carter or Bill Clinton, and they had nominated somebody like John Kerry. Walter Mondale, Mike Dukakis, they lost because people just thought, you know what, that guy is a true blue progressive, it Is crazy. And so Obama came along and this one-time equation said, I can get record minority turnout. And he, the Democrats quickly learned, yeah, you can, but the price of getting that turnout is such shrill... Polarization that you turned off these working classes, and that was predicated on the Republicans nominating a John McCain or Mitt Romney, establishment blue stocking. But what would happen if they nominated a person who appeals to the working class, and you guys nominated a 69 year old wealthy white woman, uh, multimillionaire? Are your constituents going to be transferred from Obama to Hillary? And you think those people are going to sit out when somebody's campaigning on jobs and bringing back the steel industry and and giving uh, the working man a break? And that's exactly what happened in this last election. So I think now the Democratic Party is, is really in turmoil because after losing the legislatures and the governorships, the House, the Senate, Supreme Court, the presidency, they're looking at – um, some of them are looking at 2020 and they're seeing 1972 and they're thinking, wow, 68, we almost beat Nixon. Had we just campaigned, had there not been rights in Chicago, we would have won. But instead, we blamed Humphrey for being not <laughs> liberal enough, so we nominated the nut, McGovern. And so now they're looking at Hillary. Wow, she won the popular vote. She was a terrible candidate. She called a quarter of the population irredeemable and deplorable. If we just had a centrist like her, but he was more like Bill Clinton minus his character defects, but he was just a centrist and he was a good campaigner, we would have really won. Instead, they're saying, nope, we're going to get a, a McGovern. So they're going to go hard to the left and they're going to. Look, I think that's going to really be bad news for them.
0: All right. Thanks as always to our listeners for tuning in to the Classics Podcast. We'll be back soon with another episode. Until then, stop by definingideas at hoover.org to read more of Victor's commentary. For Victor Davis Hanson, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.